All right, if you would turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Billy's over here laughing at me because she knows what the text is. <laughs> Funny enough, though, it, it fell on the week that I'm preaching. Uh, when we're going through a book like 1 Peter, like we're doing now, or like when we went through Samuel, it always seems that the most difficult passages fall onto the Sundays that I'm preaching. I'm not saying it's on purpose, but it seems to be, seems to be a pattern arising here. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I'm sure it's helping me. It's good for me. Uh, but this weekend, as you turn there, I'll tell you about what me and Ashley got to do this weekend. Uh, we got to go to uh, Panama City uh, and fish Friday morning and Saturday morning. And we had some uh, great time. God blessed us with some, uh, some great weather. We were able to catch some, some good fish. Um, Ashley, of course, she, she outfished me about two to one, which that's, that's to be expected. She normally does so when we go out there and go deep sea fishing. But as we made several trips out and, and back into the, to the bay, I noticed um, this sign that I really hadn't paid a lot of attention to before. I, I knew it was there, and I know it's an important sign, but I've never really paid attention to the wording of it. But that sign is, is this sign right here that says, resume normal safe operations. If you're out on the water, I don't know if lakes have these kind of signs, but I know at least in the bay areas and around docks and around um, you know, congested areas, there's this sign that tells you to, uh, that says no, no wake zone when you get in those areas, and no wake zone. So it goes slow enough that you don't make a wake behind you. But when you come out of that zone, this is the sign that you see. Resume normal, safe operations. And the reason that sign stood out to me is the word safe. It's as if resume normal operations isn't a good enough thing to say. And I think that's because our normal may not be the same as other people's normal. You know, one person's normal operation may not be a safe operation. And that's pretty obvious if you ever go out on the water and see people drive boats, especially in a place like Panama City where, you know, you can just go and rent one. You don't have to have a license to drive a boat. You can just go and take one out into the ocean. And so it stood out to me because they had to caveat the word normal with safe. Normal, safe operation. Not just normal operation, but normal and safe operation. See, 1 Peter chapter 3 addresses the relationship between men and women within the context of marriage. And I was, as I was thinking about this text, and as we were riding out on the boat, and I kept seeing this sign, I began to think about what is the normal operation of marriage in our culture today? What is the normal operation of marriage? And the truth is that when it comes to our culture's normal operation of marriage, it's about as good as most people's normal operation of a boat. It's not necessarily that good. It, it's, it's at best chaotic, and at worst, it's dangerous. And I think we see the same thing in, in our culture's normal marriage. For example, a normal marriage has about a 40% chance of ending in divorce. That's, that's steep. That's a lot. To put that into a different perspective, on average, about nine people will get divorced during the time that it takes for a couple to recite their wedding vows. That's that's a lot. And these numbers represent that something is broken with normal marriages. With normal marriages. And I'm aware that there are Christians who have been divorced. There are Christians in this room who have been divorced. And I'm in no way talking about divorce in this sermon. This is not what this passage is about. This is not what my sermon is about. But the point that I'm making is that 
the normal marriage is broken. And in this passage in God's word, we see a prescription for marriage. We see how God has designed marriage. And as Christians, our marriages need to be better than normal marriages that we see in society. So let's read together in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And let's kind of see, actually verses 1 through 7, excuse me. Let's see uh, what God is saying to us here today about marriages, about how men and women relate to each other within the context of marriage. 1 Peter chapter 3, Verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I realized I went ahead and flipped this too soon on accident just then just to get that sign off the screen. But this is what I want us to look at as we dig through this passage as, as the big idea for what this text, I think, is speaking to us. And that is that Christian wives and husbands should relate to each other in a way that reflects God's design and Christ's love for the church. That Christian wives and husbands should relate to each other in a way that reflects God's design and Christ's love for the church. And into this sentence, I built... I put these two words that I wanted us to focus on, these two little phrases, and that is in God's design and then the idea of Christ's love for the church being represented in marriage. And I want us to kind of talk about those before we dig into the commands of this text, and there's a reason for that. But first, let's look at that, that idea of, of marriage as being God's, or, or submission and authority, at least in marriage, being God's design for marriage. I want, to, I want us to know that, that this idea of submission and authority within the context of marriage isn't a result of the fall. It's, it's not a part of the curse. Instead, it was a part of God's good design, and it was damaged by the curse. It was damaged by sin. Genesis 3.16 says, or this is God speaking to the woman, it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There are many ways that this text has been translated. Some people, some, some Bible translations will say, uh, that your desire shall be to rule over your husband, but he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Um, and I think with the, with the contrast that we see there where it says, but he shall rule over you in Genesis, I think we kind of get the idea that, um, that whatever it is, that the woman's desire is going to be contrary to her husband. And that before this, that might not have been the case. And the, what we see is, as a result of the fall, there's not this harmony within marriage. And, and then when there's not this harmony, then there's also a sinful reaction from the man to try to dominate, to try to control that idea of, but he shall rule over you. That's, that's not a picture of, of a loving husband guiding his wife. That's a picture of a, of a man trying to dominate his wife, trying to lay down his own authority instead of seeking the authority that God has given him. So regardless, what we see here is that this is the idea of a, of a broken um, relationship within marriage, the broken idea of submission and authority. But from the beginning, though, from in creation, it was a good thing. 
Authority and submission is a, is a good thing because God has created it and he introduced it in the beginning. And I, and I argue that for a couple different reasons. The first reason is that God created man first. God created Adam first who would have then, of course, become the first husband. And so you may say, well, that's not a big deal, the idea that he just came first. I mean, just somebody had to come first, so what, what does that mean? But, I mean, if you think about God and think about his sovereignty and, and the detail that God puts into creation, we can't assume that this is just random. You know, there's some meaning to it, to the idea that, that God created man first. Secondly, God gives Adam the responsibility of, of passing along the moral code to his wife. Uh, if you go back and read Genesis later, read through and, and see where God tells Adam, don't eat of, of this particular tree in the garden before he creates Eve. And that implies that Adam was supposed to, to lead his wife in this way, that he was supposed to guide her and, and pass this along to her and protect her from that sin. And we see, of course, Adam fails in that way, and Eve fell in that way. They, they failed in this way. And so, but when that happens, who does God confront, confront first? Who does God go to first? He goes to Adam. Again, we kind of just see all these things together create this pattern that even before the fall, even before the first sin, that we see this idea that, that leadership in the marriage was, was to be uh, for the husband, to, to guide his wife, to protect his wife, to lead his wife. So the reason that I want us to recognize that, that, that this idea of authority and submission within a marriage, the, that it's God-given, is because I don't want us to make this mistake that many people have made when reading this passage. And that mistake is to say, this text is culturally outdated. To say that, oh, we don't live like this anymore. But sure, in that context, this made perfect sense. But in our context, the idea of submission and authority within a marriage, that just don't make sense. And But if we see that this is designed by God this way, we know that this is not some temporary cultural understanding of marriage. It is God's design for marriage. So it is true for us just as it is true for anybody who lived in, in the Greco-Roman times, the times of these first Christians in which, first, in which Peter is writing to in this letter. So this text is for you and me. It's not culturally outdated. It's still re relevant for marriages today. Secondly, so first I wanted to point out that it's God's design, but secondly I want us to see that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. I'm sure you're probably familiar with that phrase that it's, it reflects Christ's love for the church. That's not in the passage that we read today, but in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 27, we see a very similar passage. I'm going to read, um, I'll just read kind of the last part of this passage just so you kind of get an idea of what I'm saying. He says something very similar about wives, and then he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And then later in that passage, Paul says that this mystery is profound. And he goes on to say, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So then marriages should be modeled after Jesus' relationship to the church. We see that the church lovingly submits to Jesus. And then Jesus lovingly or lovingly loves, his, loves the church. He loves the church and, and cares for the church and sacrifices himself for the church. So when a, when, a, when a Christian wife submits to her husband, she is displaying the way that the church submits to Jesus. And when a Christian husband loves his wife, he is displaying the way in which Jesus loved the church. 
And so because this idea is true, this makes this passage relevant not just to married people but to anybody in the church because you can see this truth. When you look at this idea of marriage, you can say how much a husband should love his wife. Jesus loves the church infinitely more than that. And then in the way in which a church submits to Jesus, or the way in which a good Christian wife would submit to her husband, the church submits to Jesus in that way. So this text is relevant for any Christian sitting here today. Miss Cindy, when we first got here, she said, I don't think I need to be here today. I'm not, I'm not a wife and I'm not a husband. I said, I'm going to get to that. And that's because this text is, uh, is true because we can see in marriage a picture of Christ and the church. And again, 1 Peter doesn't, doesn't address that himself, but Paul addresses that. And he mentions that in his text. And so, you know, hopefully you see good marriages within our church. And when you see those good marriages, you can say, man, how much that man loves his wife. Jesus loves the church infinitely more than that, so much more perfectly than that. And so you can just see a good picture and a glimpse of what, um, of what marriage shows, and it shows Christ's love for the church. So... After bringing these two ideas to the surface to try to keep us from making any mistakes or making any errors, I want us now to dig into the text. This is not a popular text. This is why Miss Billy Sue looked at me funny when we first opened the text, because this is an uncomfortable text sometimes. This is um, a difficult text sometimes. And I admit, with only a year and a half of marriage under my belt, I'm not the most you know, prepared to preach this as far as experience goes. Some of you have far more experience with marriage than I, than I have or could ever have. And so uh, as we dig into this, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm speaking from a position of humility. I'm leaning on what God's Word has said here and in other places. Uh, so let's dig into the, to the commands. We see two commands given to wives, and we see one command given to husbands. So let's look here. Wives, wives be subject to your husband. Wives, be subject to your husband. You see that right there in the first verse, chapter 3. I'm going to read it again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So you'll notice, though, that, that in, this in this verse, in the rest of this passage, Peter doesn't dig into details. Peter doesn't say this is exactly how this should look within a marriage. He doesn't say, you know, this is the steps you have to take. This is the way in which... A woman subjects herself to her husband. He does give an example of, of how Sarah obeyed Abraham. She gives an example of, of unbelieving wives and how, or unbelieving husbands and how their wives may win them to Christ. But he doesn't say, this is what this looks like. And so I want to follow that wisdom and not try to say anything more than what God's word has said about marriages. Now, that being said, I do think that there are a lot of things that we can say based on this text and other texts that what this doesn't mean. I think we can learn a lot to say what this doesn't mean. And once we examine what it doesn't mean, I think we can kind of make a good statement about what it does mean. So the first thing that it doesn't mean, it does not mean that women are inferior to men. It does not mean that women are inferior to men in any way. God's word is clear that men and women were both created in the image of God. Again, you could just read Genesis for this text as like, a, as like a background study, and you'll see a lot of the truths here seen in Genesis. But men and women are both made in the image of God. This puts us on level ground as human beings. We are made equal in our essence as human beings. And if you'll notice, 
what Peter says. Look at, look at verse 7 when he instructs men. Look at what he says. He says, to, to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So again, that's just a, that's just a point to, to the equality of men and women. Uh, God's word was very counterculture in that way. During this time, you wouldn't have seen that kind of equality in the culture, but God's word is clear that men and women are equal. God has given, even though we're equal, God has given husbands and wives roles within the marriage, the role of leadership going to the husband and submission going to the wife. But submission does not negate equality. Submission does not negate equality. It does not contrast with equality. To kind of illustrate that idea that submission and equality can go hand in hand, think about the Trinity. Think about the way that Jesus submits to the Father. Would you make the case that Jesus is any less God than the Father? You wouldn't. You shouldn't at least. And you wouldn't say, you wouldn't think any less of Jesus because he submitted to the Father. That, that's a point to Jesus. That is, a, that is a praise to Jesus that he submitted to the Father. And so we see in the Trinity that, that, that submission is a good thing. And, and, in, uh, and in that we see that submission and equality go hand in hand because the Father and Jesus are equal in essence. The Father and the Son are equal in essence. And so for Jesus to submit to the Father does not contrast with their equality. It's the same way with wives and husbands. Submission does not take a stab at equality. It's not to say that men are in any way um, better able to lead. It doesn't say that men are, are smarter or, or better at leading. It just says that this is how God has designed marriage. So first idea that it doesn't mean is that it doesn't mean that women are inferior to men. So the second thing that it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that all men have to, or that all women have to submit to all men. Peter is very clear in saying, be subject to your own husbands. Be subject to your own husbands. This is important for us to kind of grasp because this passage and other similar passages in God's word have been used to to kind of make an argument about women in leadership in any context. But the truth is that, that outside of the church and outside of the, the family and outside of marriage, there's no biblical mandate for male leadership. So as far as outside of the church and outside of the family, there's no mandate for men to be in leadership. So it's not unbiblical for women to be CEOs, for women to be uh, presidents, for women to be uh, community leaders. And then even within your own family, there's no command that women can't make more money than the husband. I mean, we could get real specific and say, oh, the man has to be the primary breadwinner, but, but God's word doesn't get specific in that way. And so I mean, think, about, think about me right now. I'm a pastor. My wife's about to graduate with a master's in accounting. You do the math on that. I mean, there's going to be some, some unevenness there, but that's okay because God's word is not speaking to that. God's word is speaking, yes, husbands provide for your wives, but it doesn't get into the details. So it doesn't mean that all women submit to all men. So outside of that context of the church and outside of the context of marriage, there's no mandate for male leadership. So the third thing that it doesn't mean is that it doesn't apply only to the wives of unbelieving or disobedient husbands. It doesn't apply only to the wives of unbelieving or disobedient husbands. So it certainly is true that in this letter, Peter did have a particular purpose in mind. He had this idea of 
uh, a, a wife who was a Christian and her husband was not. And in that case, the wife's submission to her husband could be a way in which he was one to Christ. So the goal then for that wife of an unbeliever is that her actions might lead her husband to Christ. Verse 2 says that when they see their respectful and pure conduct, they might be led to God in a, in a way. And so the word there for respectful in, in verse 2, it, it, it means, I think, more so respect to God. It's a word that we often use for reverence or, or fear. And so what, he, what he's saying there is when this unbelieving husband sees the way in which his wife uh, honors and respects God and then also shows respect to her husband and submits to her husband, he's able to have a huge impact on him. Because in this culture, there were lots of, of gods, and families would, would often follow the, the gods of the husband in the, in the household. And so for a woman to say, I'm going to only worship the one true God, but I'm also going to submit to your leadership, that would be saying something about the wife's beliefs, and it would often lead her husband to Christ. And However, though, while there is this particular purpose... There definitely is this particular purpose. This, this command is a general command for all Christian wives. The command is for wives to submit to their husbands whether they are believers or not. And, and you might even say, my husband doesn't deserve my submission. And the truth is it doesn't matter because it's not based on the competency of the husband. It's not based on the husband's ability to lead. Hopefully, though, Christian husbands are good leaders. But it's not based on that. The basis for this command is trusting in God. Not trusting in your husband. It's trusting in, in God's authority to, that has been given to the husband. It's trusting in God's wise plan. It's rooted in his wisdom and authority. So now we've said three things that, that this doesn't mean. I want us to look at just kind of one summary statement of what I think it does mean. Given what we read here, given the things that we know it doesn't mean, I think it's safe to say that it means that wives are to trust and follow the leadership of their husbands. And you may be saying, that's not saying a whole lot. And it may not be, but I think that's what we see here in this word. And I think that we have a biblical understanding of how this text is encouraging us to relate to one another. To say any more, I believe, would be overstepping. It would be giving too much detail where there's not detail. And this command will flesh itself out in different ways within different relationships. So, much, so long as it is following this guideline of subjecting and submitting to the husband. So following the leadership, though, of your husband also doesn't mean that you, uh, that you do it blindly. You always follow God's word. And it also doesn't mean that you try to persuade. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't try to persuade your husband in different ways. If you don't think there's not times where Ashley tries to convince me that what I'm thinking is wrong, then, then, then you're wrong. Because there are times where I may say, let's do this. And no, that, that might not be the best idea. And I say, yeah, you're right. You know, this would be a better, a better thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that. So to tie this back again to our big ideas, it's not trusting in, you know, to, to, to submit yourself to your husband. It's not to say, oh, you, oh, you know, he is deserving of that because, honestly, husbands, we're not deserving of that. But the idea is trusting in God's plan for marriage and trusting in his design for marriage and his authority and wisdom. And so that's the first command given to wives. Like I said, there's two commands that are given to wives in this passage. The second is, do not your adorning be external. And if this first command, it would be easy to say, oh, this is, this is irrelevant now. This command would be even more easy to say that with. But there is something to be said here about, um, about what God is telling us. If we listen to what God's telling us, we can see that it's absolutely relevant here to our own 
time, relevant to, again, to our relationships between husbands and wives. So what then does Peter mean when he says, let's just go ahead and read that verse again, verses 3 through 6. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what then? Is, what, what is Peter getting at here? What, is, what, what case is Peter making? And I want to say I don't think that he means not to do these things. I mean, because certainly Peter isn't saying women don't wear clothes. That would be pretty counterproductive there. So I don't think it's a prohibition against these things. He's not saying that you can't braid your hair, that you can't put on nice jewelry. I have a very beautiful wife, and she oftentimes braids her hair. I almost got her to braid her hair this morning just to, just to make a point. But she, uh, she oftentimes braids her hair. She oftentimes wears nice jewelry. I don't think she has a lot of gold jewelry, but she oftentimes wears really nice jewelry. Some things from, from Hayes Jewels, a little shameless plug there. <laughs> but... Um, but she wears nice jewelry, and she, she wears nice clothes sometimes. But I don't think that's what Peter is, is prohibiting. I think what Peter is prohibiting here is, is don't let these things, these external things, be where your beauty comes from. Don't let these external things be the source of, of where your beauty is. And, of course, this is speaking mostly you know, to women, to wives again. But think about what God says in 1 Samuel. He says, man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So God cares more about what's internal for us than he does what we wear, what we look like, how we braid our hair. Again, there's no prohibition against those things. There's no saying, don't doll yourself up. Don't, don't, look, don't look beautiful. Don't, you know, don't put on nice clothes and, and jewelry. Instead, don't let those things be your adorning. Instead, what he says in verse, let's uh, see in verse Four, instead, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So this is, again, an echo of what we, what we read in 1 Samuel. God looks on the heart. So don't let your beauty come from your hair, your jewelry, the clothing you wear. Instead, let your jewelry come from this thing that is imperishable, this thing that's not going away because beauty and looks and clothes, they're going to fade away. But what doesn't fade is this gentle and quiet spirit that submits to your husband's leadership. So quiet. You might have heard me say quiet, and some of, some of the men might have, might have smirked at their wives. So don't, don't get in trouble here. This is not necessarily meaning quiet in volume. It doesn't necessarily mean quiet in volume. I think for two reasons. I think a quiet spirit, for one, is, is not just something that is benefiting for women, but it's benefiting for all believers. Um, we see in other places where God's word commands all believers to be gentle and to be meek. And so it's not just something necessarily for all believers. And two, it doesn't necessarily mean quiet in volume. In fact, um, a few verses down in this, in this passage, First um, Peter chapter 3, verse 15, tells all believers to have a defense, a defense for the gospel ready, but he says, do so gently and respectfully. So that seems to carry the same weight and idea here as a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me just read how this one commentator has put this. I think, I think she summed it up in a very really good way. 
says, quiet has the sense of quietness of peace as opposed to the loudness of war. It means being a calming presence, particularly when things are or could become warlike, to calmly pursue peace while others around create war. Gentle and quiet spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit is not incompatible with being extroverted, talkative, humorous, and enthusiastic too. So it's not, it's not quiet in volume, but it's quiet in, in spirit, creating peace um, in times that may look like war. So Peter then gives an example for this kind of God-honoring adornment and submission when he points to Sarah. He says that women who adorned themselves in the past submitted themselves to their husbands and thus pleased God. He says it's pleasing to him. And he closes out this direction to wives by saying in verse 6 that Christian wives today are children to Sarah. So in Sarah, you have a good ancestor to look at and to follow and say, this is a good example of someone who has followed her husband and in return who God blessed. And so we see there, I think, a good argument that, that to adorn yourselves does not mean not putting on nice clothes, not braiding your hair. Instead, it means submitting to your husband, and it means having a gentle and quiet spirit that pleases God. So that's the two points that, that Peter here gives to women. Be subject to your husbands and do not adorn yourselves with external things. Finally, we come to Peter's commands for husbands. He doesn't spend as much time speaking to husbands as he does to women, but he says a lot, though, still to husbands. He says to husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. Let's, let's just read those verses again. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So this command is twofold. Live with your wife in an understanding way and show her honor. Show her honor. As we did the same thing with, with women, though, I want to point out one thing at least that this does not mean. One thing that Peter, Peter does, does not say here is husbands, subject your wives to yourself. He does not say, husbands, subject your wives to yourself. He gives that command to women, to, to, to wives. Subject yourself to your husband. So the idea there is that men are not to assert or demand this authority. Women are not to go and seek this. I mean, men are not to go and seek this and to, and to create dominance or demand this authority in any way. But nevertheless, though, God has given to men this position of leadership and this position of authority. And if husbands are going to lead in a Christ-like way, in a way in which represents the way that Christ loved the church, it has to be with knowledge of God and of, of his wife, and it needs to be while showing her honor. If we keep this focus within our, within our context of leadership, and we, we, when leading our wives, if we think about this idea of showing her honor and with, with living in a knowledgeable way, then I think we'll be safe in, in, in loving our wife the way in which Christ loved the church, or at least a way that resembles that. The husband's leadership of his wife should be flooded with honor, should be built around honor. Our number one goal in our marriage should be to honor Jesus, but our number two goal should be to honor our wives. This, and this will greatly influence the way that we practice this authority that God has given to men, to husbands. This will greatly influence the way that we, that we lead our wives, that we practice this authority. If we honor our wives, 
We won't demand to have the last say in every decision. Instead, we will seek the wisdom of our wives, and we will consult our wives on decisions. But we also know that ultimately, on decisions of spiritual importance and on family decisions that God has given to men, the authority and the responsibility and the burden of making that decision and doing what's best for our family. But again, though, if, if we do so with the idea of honoring our wives in mind and showering her with honor while we practice our authority, we're going to be in good shape, I think. Just kind of sum that in one sentence. Use the authority that God has given you to serve and honor your wife. So just kind of a, a silly example, a minute example. Think about if you're going somewhere in the car and you're trying to figure out where you're going to eat. So as the husband, should you say, oh, I'm the husband, so I get to decide what we're going to eat. That would be very unwise, right? And it wouldn't be very honorable. So what do you do? You say, you say, where do you want to eat? And that's where you go. Ten times out of ten. There's no, there's no debate there. You go where she wants to go. Unless your wife's like my wife. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't care. You pick. So then what you have to do to, to, to honor her is you have to name places. <laughs> and she says no, and then you have to keep naming places until you get to the one that she didn't want to go to to begin with. And that's how you honor her. Sometimes I'll, I'll pick on her. If she says, you pick, I'll say Burger King, knowing that she don't want to go to Burger King <laughs> so that I can get quicker to where she wants to go, where she really wants to go, because she's got somewhere in mind already. That's just an example, a very silly, minute example of how we can honor our wives with the authority that God has given us, with the decisions that we, that we get to make. We can still include our wives in those and, and respect our wives and honor her in those decisions. So to recap what Peter has commanded, wives, be subject to your husbands. Wives, do not adorn yourselves with external things. And men, honor your wife and live with her in an understandably way. Finally, uh, no, excuse me, there is no further application for me to draw on this. I'm not going to say this is what this means because I don't know exactly how this plays out. The, the application then is to do these things. Do what First Peter has already said to do. Follow these things. Um, lean on God's word here. And if you start thinking about this text, just in your day-to-day -day conversations with your spouses, if you start thinking about those things, God will begin to convict you of ways that you're not living up to this. As I've been preparing this week and studying this word and, and reading different things and, and praying, God has torn me up about ways that I have not been honoring my wife, ways that I could do better, ways that I could further show her honor. And so if you do that, if you ask God, show me how I can do better, he will. If you focus on God's word and, and you lean into that, it'll happen. And the truth, though, is that we need grace to do these things. These are not easy things to do. Do you think in the culture, do you think the norm is for wives to submit to their husbands lovingly for, and for husbands to just shower their wives in honor? It may be like a good idea, but that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So we need grace to do these things. The marriage relationship was damaged at the fall. And it was damaged by sin. But through Christ and through his word, it can be redeemed. Not to perfection, but at least can be redeemed in a way in which it allows us to honor and please God with the way that we relate to our spouses in marriage. That should be the aim of our marriages. Because they're, they're temporary things. They're not going to last forever. 
and so if we do get married, then the purpose, like all earthly things, is that we use them to honor God and to please God and to glorify God with it. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word and how you've given us in it uh, what we need to know uh, to, to please you, dear God, and to glorify you, dear God. I ask you that you would let us be uh, transformed by this, dear God, that you would uh, draw us closer to yourself, dear God, and that you would impress these commands on our hearts, dear God, that we might better live them out in our own marriages and our own relationships, relationships, dear God, that you would let us uh, be able to uh, follow these in a way in which draws us to yourself, dear God, in a way in which represents Christ's love for the church and the church's uh, submission to Christ, dear God, and that, that ultimately, above all things, dear God, that you would be glorified and that you would convict us of where we're failing to do so, dear God, that you would draw those out of our hearts, that you would lead us back to your word and closer to you. And all these things I pray in your gracious and holy name. Amen.